Book Two, Chapter Four of the Lancashire Witches. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Andy Minter. The Lancashire Witches, A Romance of Pendle Forest, by William Harrison Ainsworth. Book Two, Pendle Forest, Chapter Four, The Reeve of the Forest. The surprise of the party was by no means diminished when the stranger spoke. His voice exactly resembled the sharp, cracked tone of the attorney. "'I crave pardon for the freedom I have taken in stopping you, good masters,' he said, doffing his cap and saluting them respectfully. "'But being aware of your errand, I am come to attend you on it.' "'And who are you, fellow, who thus volunteer your services?' demanded Roger Nowell sharply. "'I am one of the reeves of the forest of Blackburnshire, worshipful sir,' replied the stranger, "'and as such my presence at the intended perambulation of the boundaries of her property has been deemed necessary by Mrs. Nutter, as I shall have to make representation of the matter at the next court of Swainsmode.' "'Indeed!' exclaimed Noel. "'But how knew you we were coming?' "'Mistress Nutter sent me word last night.' replied the reeve, that Master Nicholas Asherton and certain other gentlemen would come to Rough Lee for the purposes of ascertaining the marks, mirrors, and boundaries of her property, early this morning, and desired my attendance on the occasion. Accordingly, I stationed myself on yon high ground to look out for you, and have been on the watch for more than an hour. Oomph! exclaimed Roger Nowell. And you live in the forest? I live at Barrowford, worshipful sir, replied the reeve, but I have only lately come there having succeeded Maurice Mottisfont, the other reeve, who has been removed by the master forester to Rossendale, where I formerly dwelt. "'That may account for my not having seen you before,' rejoined Noel. "'You are well mounted, sir. I did not know that master forester allowed his men such horses as the one you ride.' "'This horse does not belong to me, sir,' replied the reeve. "'It has been lent me by Mistress Nutter.' "'Ah, I see how it is now.' cried Noel. "'You are so born to give false testimony, knave. I object to his attendance, Master Nicholas.' "'Nay, I think you do the man injustice,' said the squire. "'He speaks frankly and fairly enough, and seems to know his business. The worst that can be said against him is that he resembles somewhat too closely our little legal friend there. That, however, ought to be no objection to you, Master Noel, but rather the contrary.' "'Well, take the responsibility of the matter upon your own shoulders.' said Noel. "'If any ill comes of it, I shall blame you.' "'Be it so,' replied the squire. "'My shoulders are broad enough to bear the burden. You may ride with us, Master Eve.' "'May I inquire your name, friend?' said Potts, as the stranger fell back to the rear of the party. "'Thomas Potts, at your service, sir,' replied the Reeve. "'What, Thomas Potts?' exclaimed the astonished attorney. "'That is my name, sir,' replied the Reeve, quietly. "'Why, Downs!' exclaimed Nicholas, who overheard the reply. "'You do not mean to say your name is Thomas Potts. This is more wonderful still. You must be this gentleman's twin brother.' "'The gentleman certainly seems to resemble me very strongly,' replied the reeve, apparently surprised in his turn. "'Is he of these parts?' "'No, I am not,' returned Potts angrily. "'I am from London, where I reside in Chancery Lane, and practice the law.' though I likewise attend as clerk of the court at the Assizes of Lancaster, where I may possibly, one of these days, have the pleasure of seeing you, my pretended namesake.' "'Possibly, sir,' 
said the reeve, with provoking calmness. "'I myself am from Chester, and, like yourself, was brought up to the law. But I abandoned my profession, or rather it abandoned me, for I had few clients, so I took to an honester calling, and became a forester, as you see.' My father was a draper in the city I have mentioned, and dwelt in Watergate Street. His name was Peter Potts.' "'Peter Potts, your father?' exclaimed the attorney, in the last state of astonishment. "'Why, he was mine! But I am his only son!' "'Up to this moment I conceived myself an only son,' said the reeve. "'But it seems I was mistaken, since I find I have an elder brother.' "'Elder brother?' exclaimed Potts wrathfully. "'You are older than I by twenty years. But it is all a fabrication. I deny the relationship entirely.' "'You cannot make me other than the son of my father,' said the reeve, with a smile. "'Well, Master Potts,' interposed Nicholas, laughing, "'I see no reason why you should be ashamed of your brother. There is a strong family likeness between you.' "'So old Peter Potts, the draper of Chester, was your father, eh? I was not aware of the circumstances before.' "'And but for this intrusive fellow you would never have become aware of it,' muttered the attorney. "'Give ear to me, squire,' he said, urging Flint close up to the other's side, and speaking in a low tone. "'I do not like that fellow's looks at all.' "'I am surprised at that,' rejoined the squire, "'for he exactly resembles you.' "'That is why I do not like him,' said Potts. "'I believe him to be a wizard.' Oh, "'You're no wizard to think so,' rejoined the squire, and he rode on to join Roger Nowell, who was a little in advance. "'I will try him on the subject of witchcraft,' thought Potts. "'As you dwell in the forest,' he said to the reeve, "'you have no doubt seen those two terrible beings, mothers Demdike and Chattox.' "'Frequently.' replied the reeve, but I would rather not talk about them in their own territories. You may judge of their power by the appearance of the village you have just quitted. The inhabitants of that unlucky place refused them their customary tributes, and have therefore incurred their resentment. You will meet other instances of the like kind before you have gone far. I am glad of it, for I want to collect as many cases as I can of witchcraft, observed Potts. They will be of little use to you, observed the reeve. "'How so?' inquired Potts. "'Because if the witches discover what you are about, as they will not fail to do, you will never leave the forest alive,' returned the other. "'You think not?' cried Potts. "'I am sure of it,' replied the reeve. "'I will not be deterred from the performance of my duty,' said Potts. "'I defy the devil and all his works.' "'You may have reason to repent your temerity,' replied the reeve. And anxious, apparently, to avoid further conversation on the subject, he drew in the rein for a moment, and allowed the attorney to pass on. Notwithstanding his boasting, Master Potts was not without much secret misgiving, but his constitutional obstinacy made him determined to prosecute his plans at any risk, and he comforted himself by recalling the opinion of his sovereign authority on such matters. "'Let me ponder over the exact words of our British Solomon,' he thought." I have his learned treatise by heart, and it is fortunate my memory serves me so well, for the sagacious prince's dictum will fortify me in my resolution, which has been somewhat shaken by this fellow, whom I believe to be no better than he should be, for all he calls himself my father's son, and hath assumed my likeness, doubtless for some mischievous purpose. If the magistrate, saith the king, 
be slothful towards wishes. God is very able to make them instruments to waken and punish his sloth. No one can accuse me of slothfulness and want of zeal. My best exertions have been used against the accursed creatures. And now for the rest. But if, on the contrary, he be diligent in examining and punishing them, God will not permit their master to trouble or hinder so good a work. Exactly what I have done. I am quite easy now, and shall go on fearlessly as before. I am one of the lawful lieutenants described by the king, and cannot be defrauded or deprived of my office. As these thoughts passed through the attorney's mind, a low derisive laugh sounded in his ears, and connecting it with the reeve he looked back, and found the object of his suspicions gazing at him and chuckling maliciously. So fiendishly malignant, indeed, was the gaze fixed upon him, that Potts was glad to turn his head away to avoid it. "'I am confirmed in my suspicions,' he thought. "'He is evidently a wizard, if he be not.' Again the mocking laugh sounded in his ears, but he did not venture to look round this time, being fearful of once more encountering the terrible gaze. Meanwhile the party had traversed the valley, and, to avoid a dangerous morass stretching across its lower extremity, and shorten the distance, for the ordinary road would have led them too much to the right, they began to climb one of the ridges of Pendle Hill, which lay between them and the vale they wished to gain. On obtaining the top of this eminence, an extensive view on either side opened upon them. Behind was the sterile valley they had just crossed, its black soil, hoary grass, and heathy wastes, only enlivened at one end by patches of bright sulphur-coloured moss, which masked a treacherous quagmire lurking beneath it. Some of the cottages in Sabden were visible, and from the sad circumstances connected with them, and which oppressed the thoughts of the beholders, added to the dreary character of the prospect. The day, too, had lost its previous splendour, and there were clouds overhead, which cast deep shadows on the ground. But on the crest of Pendle Hill, which rose above them, a sunburst fell, and attracted attention from its brilliant contrast to the prevailing gloom. Before them lay a deep gully, the sinuosities of which could be traced from the elevated position where they stood, though its termination was hidden by other projecting ridges. Farther on, the sides of the mountain were bare and rugged, and covered with shelving stone, beyond the defile before mentioned, and over the last mountain ridge lay a wide valley, bounded on the further side by the hills overlooking Colne, and the mountain defile, now laid open to the travellers, exhibiting in the midst of the dark heathy ranges, which were its distinguishing features, some marks of cultivation. In parts it was enclosed and divided into paddocks by stone walls, and here and there a few cottages were collected together, dignified, as in the case of Sabden, by the name of a village. Amongst these were the hay-houses, an assemblage of small stone tenements, the earliest that arose in the forest. Goldshaw Booth, now a populous place, and even then the largest hamlet in the district, and in the distance Ogden and Barley, the two latter scarcely comprising a dozen habitations, and those little better than huts. In some sheltered nook on the hillside might be discerned the solitary cottage of a cowherd, and not far from it the certain accompaniment of a sheepfold. Throughout this weird region, thinly peopled, it is true, but still of great extent, and apparently abandoned to the powers of darkness, only one edifice could be found where its inhabitants could meet to pray, 
and this was an ancient chapel at Goldshaw Booth, originally erected in the reign of Henry the Third, though subsequently in part rebuilt in 1544, and which, with its low grey tower peeping from out the trees, was just discernible. Two halls were in view, one of which, Sabden, was of considerable antiquity, and gave its name to the village. And the other was Hawstones, a much more recently erected mansion, strikingly situated on an acclivity of Pendle Hill. In general, the upper parts of this mountain monarch of the waste were bare and heathy, while the heights overhanging Ogden and Barley were rocky, shelving, and precipitous. But the lower ridges were well covered with wood, and the thicket, once forming part of the ancient forest, ran far out into the plain near Goldshaw Booth. Numerous springs burst from the mountain-side, and these, collecting their forces, formed a considerable stream, which, under the name of Pendle Water, flowed through the valley above described, and after many picturesque windings entered the rugged glen in which Rough Lee was situated, and swept past the foot of Mistress Nutter's residence. Descending the hill and passing through the thicket, the party came within a short distance of Goldshaw Booth, when they were met by a cowherd, who, with looks of great alarm, told them that John Law, the peddler, had fallen down in a fit on the clough, and would perish if they did not stay to help him. As the poor man in question was well known to Nicholas and Roger Nowell, they immediately agreed to go to his assistance, and accompanied the cowherd along a by-road which led through the clough to the village. They had not gone far when they heard loud groans, and presently afterwards found the unfortunate peddler lying on his back and writhing in agony. He was a large, powerfully built man of middle age, and had been in the full enjoyment of health and vigour, so that his sudden prostration was the more terrible. His face was greatly disfigured, the mouth and neck drawn awry, the left eye pulled down, and the whole power of the same side gone. "'Why, John, this is a bad business!' cried Nicholas. "'You have had a paralytic stroke, I fear.' "'No, no, Squire,' replied the sufferer, speaking with difficulty. "'It is no natural ailment, it's witchcraft.' "'Witchcraft!' exclaimed Potts, who had come up and producing his memorandum-book, another case. Your name and description, friend? "'John Lord of Cone, peddler,' replied the man. "'John Lord of Cone, I suppose. Petty Chapman,' said Potts, making an entry. "'Now, John, my good man, be pleased to tell us by whom you have been bewitched.' "'Thou Mother Demdike,' groaned the man. "'Mother Demdike, eh?' exclaimed Potts. "'Good, very good.' "'Now, John, as to the cause of your quarrel with the old hag?' "'I can scarcely recollect it, my head be so confused, mester,' replied the peddler. "'Make an effort, John,' persisted Potts. "'It is most desirable such a dreadful offender should not escape justice.' "'Well, well, I'm trying to tell you, then,' replied the peddler. "'You must know I was crossing tell from counter to lay with me pack on my shoulders.' "'When who should I meet but Mother Demdark, "'and who asked me to give some scissors and pins, "'but as ill luck would have it, I refused.' "'You had better do it, John,' I said, "'or you'll row it afore to-morrow night.' "'But I laughed at her and trudged on, 
when i looked back and seed her shaking her skinny on that me i repented and thought i would go back and gear the choice of my wares but my pride were too strong and i walked on to barley and ogden and slept at bessie's at the booth and woke this morning start and strong fully persuaded those witches threat had come to nought lack a day i were out of our reckoning for scarcely had i reached this clue for my way to sabden i was seized with a sudden shock as if a thunderbolt had hit me and i lost the use of my lower limbs and left side and should have died most likely if it hadn't been for able the gems of dance who spied me out and brought me help yours is a deplorable case indeed john said richard especially if it be the result of witchcraft you do not surely doubt that it is so master richard cried potts i offer no opinion replied the young man but a paralytic stroke would produce the same effect but instead of discussing the matter the best thing we can do will be to transport the poor man to bess's of the booth where he can be attended to tom and i can carry him there if abel will take charge of his back said one of the grooms that i win replied the cowherd unstrapping the box upon which the sufferer's head rested and placing it on his own shoulders meanwhile a gate having been taken from its hinges by sparshot and the reeve the poor pedlar who groaned deeply during the operation was placed upon it by the men and borne towards the village followed by the others leading their horses great consternation was occasioned in goldshaw booth by the entrance of the cavalcade and still more when it became known that john law the pedlar who was a favourite with all had had a frightful seizure old and young flocked forth to see him and the former shook their heads while the latter were appalled at the hideous sight master potts took care to tell them that the poor fellow was bewitched by mother demdike but the information failed to produce the effect he anticipated and served rather to repress than heighten their sympathy for the sufferer the attorney concluded and justly that they were afraid of incurring the displeasure of the vindictive old hag by an open expression of interest in his fate so strongly did this feeling operate that after bestowing a glance of commiseration at the pedlar most of them returned without a word to their dwellings on their way to the little hostel whither they were conveying the poor pedlar the party passed the church and the sexton who was digging a grave in the yard came forward to look at them but on seeing john law he seemed to understand what had happened and resumed his employment a wide-spreading yew-tree grew in this part of the churchyard, and near it stood a small cross, rudely carved in granite, marking the spot where, in the reign of Henry the Sixth, Ralph Clitherhoe, tenth abbot of Whaley, held a meeting of the tenantry to check encroachments. Not far from this ancient cross the sexton, a hale old man with a fresh complexion and silvery hair, was at work, and while the others went on, Master Potts paused to say a word to him. "'You have a funeral here to-day, I suppose, Master Sexton?' he said. "'Yeah,' replied the man gruffly. "'One of the villagers?' inquired the attorney. "'No, who were Noah Goldshay?' replied the sexton. "'Where, then? Who was it?' persevered Potts. The sexton seemed disinclined to answer, but at length said, "'Mary Baldwin.' "'Miller's daughter, a rough lee, and as pretty a lass as ever you'll see, master. 
There was the apple of her feather's sigh, and he hasn't had a dry arse in her deed. Well, a day, we mun all go, Odin young, and Potty Mary Baldwin was young enough. Poor lass, poor lass, and he brushed the dew from his eyes with his brawny hand. Was her death sudden? asked Potts. No, not so sudden, Mester, replied the sexton. Rochet Baldwin had fair warning. Six months ago Mary were ten ill, and but first he knowed how it would end. How so, friend? asked Potts, whose curiosity began to be aroused. Because, replied the sexton, and he stopped suddenly short. She was bewitched, suggested Potts. The sexton nodded his head, and began to ply his mattock vigorously. "'By Mother Demdike?' inquired Potts, taking out his memorandum book. The sexton again nodded his head, but spake no word, and meeting some obstruction in the ground, took up his pick to remove it. "'Another case,' muttered Potts, making an entry. "'Mary Baldwin, daughter of Richard Baldwin, of Rough Lee, aged—' "'How old was she, sexton?' Thirteen replied the man. "'But don't ask me any more questions, Mester. The burying takes place at the hour, and I am half the grave.' "'Your own name, Master Sexton, and I have done,' said Potts. "'Zachariah Worms,' answered the man. "'Worms! <laughs> An excellent name for a sexton,' cried Potts. "'You provide food for your family, eh, Zachariah?' <laughs> replied the sexton testily. "'Go mind your own business, mon, and leave me to mind mine.' "'Very well, Zachariah,' replied Potts. And having obtained all he required, he proceeded to the little hostel, where, finding the rest of the party had dismounted, he consigned Flint to a cowherd, and entered the house. End of chapter 4